Hi there. Here we are again, another Just Cast, another week in this sad and collapsing republic. <laughs> he said with a giggle, which he shouldn't really add, but it's the mood I'm in. This week, we have one of my oldest colleagues and friends, Michael Lind, who is here to talk to us about the world, history, America, and everything else. Michael is a writer and an academic, and he's taught at Harvard, Johns Hopkins, and at the University of Texas in Austin. He's been an editor or staff writer for The New Yorker, Harper's, he's done some great stuff, that, and The New Republic, where I was very lucky to have him as a contributing writer. You've definitely written for The New Yorker because Tina Brown did to you what she did to almost everyone else who worked for me, which is offer you five times as much money <laughs> to go and work for her, which you did, <laughs> you bastard. But actually, just before I quit anyway, right? That, I think that's the timing. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's right. Anyway, and now he writes frequently for the New York Times and the Financial Times. And Michael also co-founded, I didn't know this about you, but this is true, the think tank New America. You one of the co-founders of it? Yeah, it was four of us. Uh, Ted Halstead, Walter Russell Mead, Charles Schwinninger, and I. Oh. Uh, in 1999. It's, it's kind of amazing. Michael and I go back to the early 90s together, and it just doesn't seem like it's been 30 years since. But in fact... You look and sound exactly the same. I look a little <laughs> more ragged. Anyway, he's the author of many books. His most recent book was The New Class War, Saving Democracy from the Managerial Elite. And he has a new book coming out, which we'll touch on, but we won't go into a huge amount of detail on, called Hell to Pay, How the Suppression of Wages is Destroying America. Just a little update on future pods. We have Mark Lilla coming on. We also have John Ward talking about his experiences in the evangelical movement. And now he's a White House correspondent. And John Oberg, the extraordinarily cheerful, optimistic, and not too gloomy vegan activist who wants me to give up meeting all forms of meat. And I've promised I will probably get around to it at some point <laughs> in the near future. <laughs> and I'm just, I'm going to start with just egg. Anyway, Mike. Just Egg. Mike Lind, welcome to the Dishcast. I wish we'd had you on before, and it's lovely to see you again. Great to see you, Andrew. Let's, let's go back to the Mike Lind, who was born a year just before me in 1962. Tell me about the Texas and the home and the environment you grew up with and how that kind of, before you went to Yale, how that influenced you and, 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 and created who you are. Well, looking back 60 years now, that's how old I am. In, in a way, it was an advantage for me as an analyst to be born when and where I was. It was in Austin, Texas, fifth generation native. It was a time when the old South, where my grandparents had grown up as children picking cotton, coexisted with the space age. So I went to public school with the children of NASA engineers. And uh, so there was this incredible juxtaposition of high-tech modernity and really the most backward aspects of, of the rural past. The Civil Rights Act wasn't passed until I was two years old. And I had relatives who were arrested desegregating Woolworths, you know, in Austin and, and sent to jail. So, and 
the other thing was to an extent that it's hard to imagine today when everything has become so nationalized. Texas and the South and the Southwest felt like a, another country, right? I remember my best friend in first grade was a Mexican-American kid. And on Thanksgiving, we would dress up like the pilgrims in the little paper hats and eat cranberries and things like this. It was like being in a colony, right, of the Northeast. And, and then at, at Christmas, we would have the air conditioning on and it would be warm outside and sunny and we would be watching White Christmas and all of this this kind of thing. So that, you know, in, in my life now, I've seen Texas go from being kind of a backward resource colony Texas is another country. All right. So you were wearing, you were, you were reenacting WASP Northeastern rituals in Texas in the early 60s? Oh, yeah. All of the books came from the Northeast and the Midwest, right? So we had, you know, Dick and Jane and Seaspot Run, and it all looked like a Connecticut landscape. Lily White, of course, which was very strange, you know, for someone from Texas. I remember when I went to graduate school at Yale, I went with a friend on a trip through. Vermont and Maine, and we were in a movie theater, and I thought, "What? Real, there's something creepy about this place." And it occurred to me I'd never been in a movie theater that was Lily White before, where everyone was white. It was like an H.P. Lovecraft novel, you know, where you you go back to the the inbred New England village. So, so, so I was what having, was Austin, Texas, like in the early '60s? It was much more diverse. Well, in the '60s, it was a very boring, small, southern, sleepy capital, and the only two industries were the state government and the university, which also helped me in the sense that my, you know, father was a minor state attorney, my mother was a school teacher, but we didn't have many rich people in Austin. the The elite was university professors and civil servants, and so. You know, I grew up knowing the attorney general, the mayor, and all of this. At this point, Elon Musk is one of the more recent citizens of Austin. So so it's become, you know, your classic, you know, plutocratic megalopolis where there's this stratospheric economic elite at the top. Uh, so so I was, you know, kind Back of... Back then, it was, it was pretty an egal pretty egalitarian place. Yeah. Was it entirely... Was it, and it wasn't entirely white? Was that why you were shocked by what what you found in Vermont? Yeah, you know, there was, it was segregated even after the, the end of Jim Crow. But what happened in Austin in the South, but you know, the suburb I grew up in was already integrated by, by the 1960s and 1970s with, you know, professional class, African-Americans and Hispanic-Americans. And I think as a general rule, white Southerners adapted better to desegregation than white Northerners. And the reason was you, you, the races had always been commingled. I mean, you're dealing with, you know, African-Americans, if you're a white, you know, on a near daily basis, you know, in most places. In the Northeast, you had these radically segregated neighborhoods, often European immigrant neighborhoods, where with literal violence, they had demarcated the barriers between the black migrants from the South and the Irish or the Italians or whatever. So Martin Luther King Jr., you know, said that he found Chicago to be more segregated than the South when, when he went north. So, but the, the other thing about that struck me when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s was that at that time in the Northeast, things were really bad. All of the big cities were losing population. You know, we watched on TV as there were riots in New York, you know, 
New York City was bankrupt in the four administrations. And Texas and the Sun Belt and California and Florida were just booming, right? So, uh, so it, was, it was kind of a culture shock to go to the Northeast for my graduate education. So you kind of thought of the Northeast as a Texan, as a slightly over it, conflict-ridden, declining part of the United States, whereas you felt more in a more egalitarian, more multiracial, and more optimistic and booming in, in, in the South and Southwest. Yeah, and frankly, after having spent 30 years in either Washington or New York, I still feel that way. You know, if you look at uh, the highest rates of home ownership for African Americans, it's in East Texas, it's in the Houston area, being able to own single family homes. Now that that's because it's flat swampland that is humid and has no view, right? So well to do, you know, they move to the hills west of Austin, but they don't move to East Texas. But, but that's why if you're looking at California, New York, there's net domestic migration. I'm not a big Texan booster, by the way. But I think you have to understand the rise of Texas and also the rise of Florida is something that really dates back, well, really dates back to the 1930s and World War II because it was New Deal programs like rural electrification and the deliberate siting of defense plants during World War II all through the South because the Southern Democrats controlled Congress under Franklin Roosevelt. So, you know, it, it's taken almost a century but the industrialization and urbanization of, of the South is at a stage now that it was maybe 100 years ago in the Northeast and Midwest. How is, was Texas growing up different than other parts of the South racially and culturally? Texas is kind of sui generis in a way. I've, when I've been there, I've always thought of it as something utterly separate from the South and yet connected to it in some well, weird it, way. Well, it, it, it depends. How that is? That's kind of the myth because... East Texas, which had the most of the population for most of Texas history, was essentially an extension of the cotton plantation south. It was white and black, Ku Klux Klan, lynchings, you know, of one party, segregationist Democrats. In the 1920s, businessmen in, in Dallas and Fort Worth and Houston were embarrassed by this deep south image, which was accurate in many ways. So they deliberately kind of recast the image of Texas as a cowboy state with, with a big techs at the state fair in Dallas and playing him. So all of that, now some of that imagery was, was correct. One of my great grandfathers was a, a real Texas cowboy. He, he proposed to my great, great grandmother by uh, handing her a letter from horseback before tipping his hat and riding York on a cattle drive. So, so it wasn't completely, <laughs> but. But, you know, as, as I said in my book, Made in Texas, about George W. Bush and Texas politics, Texas has always been kind of a southern state masquerading as a western state. And other states were like that. For example, California, Colorado is half Great Plains, But nobody thinks of Colorado. Oh, the cornfields, Colorado, right? You know, it's mountains. So South Texas is a, a fascinating world of its own. It's the only part of the United States where uh, Tejanos, Mexican-Americans, have continuously been a majority since Texas entered the Union. And county by county, in some counties, Anglos uh, segregated the Hispanics. In others, they ran the show. So there's this history going way, way back, 150 years, of Mexican-Texan sheriffs and county judges and politicians along the Rio Grande uh, 
border. And we saw this in the last couple of years. It baffled the uh, liberal media, right? That all these farmers and ranchers who've been living in the valley, you know, since it was colonized by Spanish settlers from, from the Canary Islands in the 17th century, that they don't see themselves as helpless victims of non-Hispanic white oppression, right? To be rescued by diversity, equity, and inclusion programs. In fact, they were, they were kind of voted, they swung quite sharply towards the Republicans over the question, I understand, of immigration. Oh, yeah, yeah. And this has always been the case. If you go back to the 1950s, LBJ was very popular because he helped out the, his Mexican-American constituents a lot as a senator from Texas. But they, LULAC, the, the, the two main Mexican-American organizations in the 50s were the League of United Latin American Citizens in the GI Forum. And they represented the bourgeoisie of the Mexican-American community. And they denounced Senator Johnson in the Eisenhower years for not voting for more money to arrest, detain, and deport illegal immigrants. This has mm -hmm. been an issue forever because the growers and the ranchers would bring in the so-called mojados, it's an offensive term, wetbacks, to replace the local workers. And and I, I touched on by all the way back to so that 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 tiny microcosm, all those years was then replicated on a massive scale, twenty or thirty years later. Yeah, and what we see is remember in, in twenty sixteen the the conventional wisdom of the American intelligentsia was that the Trump and the Republicans are becoming a white nationalist party, losing minorities, and they're going to be permanent minority party. In every election since that, while the Democrats still have a majority of Black and Hispanic votes, they have been losing Black and Hispanic voters to the Republican Party, while the Republican Party has been losing upscale college-educated white voters to the Democrats. And it was arguably to former country club Republican white voters that Biden owed his election and yeah, the defeat no, of Trump. Is that is, that is one of the wrinkles. Going back to your childhood, so your parents, did they have a politics? Did you, was politics talked about in your household? Did you grow up with any kind of leanings or were you apolitical? Oh, what well, was they, young they, Michael Lind like? What, what, were, you, were you studious? Were you, were you buried in books? Were you, were you reading the newspaper? What were you like? Well, in politics, they were New Deal Democrats. Uh -huh. uh, you know, Franklin Roosevelt was gone. Uh, and mm -hmm. my father knew and, and did some work with uh, then-Senator Lyndon Johnson, you know, and my, I have a relative whose father was one of Jack Kennedy's entourage. So I, I, I mean, I grew up literally knowing all these Kennedy Johnson people. Yeah, I, the young Michael Lynn was, I don't know, it's probably like what somebody said about J.S. Mill, a brain in britches, uh, because <laughs> I... I skipped a grade in school, and I could have skipped more, but then I would have been two years or three years younger than everybody else. Uh, and and I just devoured everything I could read. I went to decent public schools, but I, I got most of my education from at home. We had the Harvard Classics, and we had a 1964 World Book Encyclopedia in several dozen volumes. And I just, when I was bored, I just read them. You do have an incredible capacity to retain information, too. Unless, uh, it, I, unless I, it's an important appointment. 
Yes, you're, back you're next. somewhere. <laughs> yes, yes, but 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 the sheer amount of historical information that you have absorbed and can repurpose is is pretty is pretty staggering. So you 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 you're a bit of a prodigy then. Your parent your your fa- your family kind of amazed by how smart you were, or were you part? Was your family itself already super smart? Well, I, I came from sort of a mixed class family because on my mother's side, they came from kind of decayed Southern gentry professors and, and school teachers and lawyers and so on. Not rich people, but, you know, upper middle class professionals. One of my great grandfathers was a founder of SMU, Southern Methodist University in Dallas and a professor there. And uh, partly Jewish descent too. They were very well educated. Jewish immigrants in the 19th century. My father's family, which I spent most of my time with, were poor Swedish immigrants who came over as indentured servants to pick cotton and then had their own little, ultimately bankrupt in the depression, cotton farms, where my paternal grandparents on both sides were picking cotton from the age of six. And so I spent a whole lot of time, more time with that family than with my mother's, you know, so I, I grew up. to think of white people picking cotton. I mean, obviously they were a minority, but there were, there were people who were essentially indentured servants picking cotton from, from Europe, from Europe. Well, it, it's, it's an interesting story. Before the Civil War, there was a Swedish businessman named S.N. Swenson from Small, poorest part of Sweden who bought a big cotton plantation in Texas. He was an abolitionist and he hated slavery. And so he decided to replace the slaves with in his poor countrymen from Jönköping in Sweden. And he brought them over. They had fixed terms as indentured servants. He cheated them by extending their terms. <laughs> That's why I'm here. And then after, <laughs> after they, so I had other great, great one great grandmother of mine was an indentured servant who was a maid who lived in an attic in the house of a rich family. So, so they grew up as basically picking cotton. They learned how to be American from the African-Americans. They pick cotton from outside. So everyone in my, that part of the family, they have Swedish last names. And their first names, it sounds like a rhythm and blues band. It's like Clarence. And my father's name was Trump, was Charles Ray. My middle name is Earl. So we could put a nice R&B band together between us. <laughs> This is this is the American way. This is why I love this country. It is such an extraordinarily diverse and strange mix of things, which is what makes it so fascinating. So you, but you, you, you did then you, you went to college. Where did you go to college? Oh, I went to the University of Texas at Austin on a scholarship. Right. Tuition was what did cheap you study in there? What uh, did you study? I went to the liberal arts honors program. It's called Plans. Got a degree in history and English. And then I wanted to be a lawyer. And I assumed I would just practice in Texas. I had no great ambitions, but I was interested in getting a in foreign policy. I thought, well, I'll get a master's degree in foreign policy and then get a law degree as a combination. And so I got accepted to Yale and went to a master's program there in international relations where I studied with Paul Kennedy, among others. And, and it was there that that's kind of where I was politicized because it was the 1980s, the Reagan years in Austin, in Texas. I was a center-left New Deal Democrat, right? In New Haven, I was a flaming reactionary, right? It was just completely... Well, you remember the, the, the world of the time. I, I do remember these things, yes. So I, I remember when Reagan invaded Grenada, some of my colleagues in the program came up and said, oh, we're going to protest, you know, Reagan's invaded a country. So I said, well, which one? And they said, well, we don't know, but we're going to protest it. 
<laughs> so so I, I really became a neoconservative at that point, a neoconservative Democrat. I voted for Anderson in, in 1980 because I didn't like Carter and I thought Reagan was too right-wing. Later became friends of John Anderson in the 1990s. In 1984, I voted for Reagan after he had not destroyed Social Security and this other stuff. And I think I was the only one at the Yale campus who did so. And people would ask me, how could you vote for Reagan? And I said, well, everyone says if he's reelected, we'll have a nuclear war and I want to find out. <laughs> you did this just, just, to, just to, to goad them into some sort of hysterical... This is where the campus was. This is sort of where the origins of some of this divide happened. I remember, too, at the same time I was at Oxford. And Freedom, common women. Yes. And it was the height of the Cold War. They actually put those missiles into Greenham Common and elsewhere, these what were, they, were they, the INF missiles. And, and everyone on campus was in complete meltdown about it. And I held a rather brattish champagne party to celebrate the arrival of the missiles. <laughs> <laughs> Just as a fuck you to all the campus lefties. It was, <clears throat> let's say, not the most grown-up tactic, but, but, well, well, but Bill, college, Bill college Buckley, Tories uh, weren't that sophisticated. Yeah, Bill Buckley, William F. Buckley Jr. had an even better line than mine. Yeah, he said, in 1964, they told me if I voted for Goldwater, we would go to war in Vietnam. So I did, and we did. <laughs> and at that point, what was the sort of roots of your support for Reagan in foreign policy? Because that's because essentially, as I understand you, yes, you were aligned with neoconservatives in the 80s and, and early 90s to some extent, but you always had a more realist edge to you, that you were not really a crusader for democracy. You were a defender of the West. Is that a, is that, is, is that a, is that probably, is that probably the, 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 of what... oh yeah, yeah. Well, I, I was a Cold War liberal. The right. liberals, you know, Arthur Schlesinger, and I got to know later and, and the New uh, Republic, the New Republic. Yeah, that, that was the older tradition. It was not, right. you know, the, the, fellow traveler or, or the, you know, the tradition. The most important book probably for my career, which I discovered one day in the library when I was an undergraduate in Austin, was Robert Conquest, The Great Terror. Mm. And I was reading this book about the millions who perished under Stalin. And all the way until the 1970s and 80s, there were a lot of scholars on the left and the West who claimed that he was exaggerating the after the fall of the Soviet Union, it turned out he had underestimated. So I'm reading this book, and I remember it to this day. I just sort of looked up in the library, and I thought, if this is correct, then what I'm being told by all of my, you know, kind of soft left professors about how the Soviet Union, you know, is not that different from the U.S. and, and the wonders of communism, it's just, just, it's all totally wrong. So either conquest is completely wrong. Or they are. And more research, I decided, you know, conquest is right. At the same time, this I was in high school when Vietnam fell in 1975 and the U.S. bugged out. And so we had Vietnamese refugees, right? And this had made a great impression on me. Like, what kind of system is it where people risk their lives to flee, right? People are being shot trying to climb over the wall from East Berlin to West Berlin. Nobody's going the opposite direction, right? You don't have both people going into communist Vietnam, you know, into communist China. 
Uh, so I was an anti-communist as well as a realist. And, and this makes a difference because I think at this stage, there are realist reasons to want to balance the power of Russia and of China. But I think that communism is no longer a fighting faith. But I think during the Cold War, the realists who said, well, Mao and Stalin, they're not really communists, they're really just marriage. I don't think that's, that's correct. They really were communists. And Dean got it right when, when he compared Marxism-Leninism to, to Islam, jihadist Islam. It was, it was a faith. And Beijing and Moscow were the rival meccas or realms of this religion. And you and I, well, both, you, it, you and I, it, you and I, yeah. Andrew, both had professors who were acolytes in the 80s. There was, there was a, a colleague of mine. I also, but we also had other, I mean, I, I remember A.J.P. Taylor, for example, the British historian, him coming to Oxford and telling us to chill out about the Soviet Union. I also remember... Well, he wanted it people was to chill out about Nazi Germany in the 1930s, so... Oh. Well, we could go through A.J.P. Taylor's yeah. very controversial past, but I revered him. But then I also would at Harvard, I had Adam Ulam, the great Russian oh, right, specialist, right, yeah. who, who, who I remember him rather, he's wonderful when he talked about Carter and, and, and the attempt to sort of, and the invasion of Afghanistan and how Carter had been shocked that the Soviets having, would actually have done such a thing. And he claimed that, that, that Carter's years in office had been a kind of, as he put it, reading period. <laughs> so the, <laughs> the reading period was what you had between the course and the exam, in which you actually had to figure out what was going on. But the way in which Ulam, and again, conquest was also critical, just exposed this. And the, the simple intuitive sense that whatever these sophisticated people are telling me, millions were murdered. Millions are fleeing. There's yeah. a wall to keep people in. Similarly today, when I am told constantly about how evil and wicked this white supremacist country is, you have to ask yourself, well, why are so many non-white people coming here? It's not <laughs> as if, it's really not as if they're fleeing. We have to keep non-white people in America. And so these sort of basic gut checks Oh, yeah. come from oh, yeah. some, some very basic internal principles. Right, but, it, but uh, it's, it's, it's common sense. Robert Conquest, in one of his books, has an absolutely brilliant passage. He, he says he was asked, how was it that he got the Soviet Union right when all of these Western Soviet autologists got it? And he said, it was because I am a science fiction writer, which is true. You know, he and Kingsley Amos and Philip Larkin wrote science fiction stories and they also exchange pornographic limericks, which evidently exists somewhere. I haven't been published yet. And horribly uh, racist limericks. Well, but well, maybe so. But so Conquest said, because I was a science fiction writer, I was accustomed to imagining alien species, extraterrestrials, who had different mentalities, but they were completely consistent, given that mentality. And this, this is a, a lesson that I've taken with me. I've, I've, when I've taught, I've tried to impress it on my students, right? Instead of just denouncing your opponents, you have to be like a dramatist or a novelist, right? It's like, you know, the method acting. Put yourself in their mindset, okay? You know, you are a woke crusader. You are an evangelical Protestant. What does the world look like to you? And even if you want to defeat these people, you need to understand them from within and if you are afraid 
that by understanding them from within, then you will be converted, then you are not secure in your own values. Hmm. Yes. Foreign policy. So then, but, but then we had the unipolar moment, as it were, which Charles Krauthammer celebrated famously in The New Republic. It was a piece I published. I now regard the celebration of the unipolar moment as essentially, and the sense of the United States runs the entire planet. We can do with it as we wish. It seemed it was kind of invigorating at the time. Communism had been defeated. We seem to be making progress. The progress in Eastern Europe was amazing. So many things fell that should have fallen. But the hubris in retrospect was intense, was it not? You were not one of the triumphalists, as I recall. No, I was the skunk at the garden party, the New Republic, as I recall. On, on foreign <laughs> I thought that was my role. <laughs> <laughs> no, I remember everybody was all enthusiastic about NAFTA. Yes. I remember because... Because the PRI, the Party of Institutional Revolution, which had been governed in Mexico as a dictatorship, soft dictatorship since the 20s, was gradually democratizing. And so I remember we had a meeting where everybody said, well, by empowering the bourgeoisie in Mexico, this will lead to democratic pressure against the government. And I remember, you may not remember this, but I remember saying, I've spent weeks in Mexico as guests of free oligarchs. The Mexican elite, one son goes into the government, one son goes into the so-called private sector, and the third son becomes a narcotrophic. It's like, you know, the British aristocracy where one becomes an admiral and one's a bishop of the Anglican Church and so It's like, they're not going to put pressure on each other. And then shortly thereafter, Carlos Salinas, it was discovered that his brother, the narcotraficante, had hundreds of skeletons, I think, on his ranch. And Salinas had to flee to Ireland. So so, uh, so I do remember, I did not share it, but uh, I do remember. No, the NAFTA enthusiasm among neoliberals, as we used to, neoliberals as we used to understand them in the 90s, meant people who used to work at the Washington Monthly or people who were lefties right. but appreciated the power of markets and were prepared to use markets to achieve left liberal goals as they understood it. But there was a, I, mean, I remember the, I remember us doing that cover editorial. It was written by. Bob Wright. Is this the one where was, it started on the cover and then it yes. bled over into the interior? That was yes. a new Republic specialty. <laughs> it was. It was thanks to Eric Baker, the, the graphic designer <laughs> in my heart, to redo the place. But it was very powerful. And it was the sense that there is no consistent, coherent argument economically against free trade, which may, you know, I, there are many arguments about this. You don't agree with that, I know. But nonetheless, even if it were true, the social and cultural impact of it would render its economic benefits, put, put its economic benefits in some contrast. We might be gaining nominal increase in growth, but we'd be tearing our actual country and social fabric apart. Well, this is now, what happened. You were one of the first people to sort of talk about this and to complain about it. You were also one of the first people that I remember in the 90s, also worrying about mass immigration and free trade. And... And in the Republican Party, there was, in the late 80s, early 90s, the beginning of a sense, and we saw this also with Perot, of some kind of centrist Democrat or even centrist Republican attempt to harness those issues for populist reasons. And you were quite sympathetic to them, as I recall. Yeah, and I was marginalized for 30 years. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I know you were. That's why, having, one of the reasons uh, I'm happy to have you more, more, More of an audience now. But I mean, ultimately, I think that Ruling paradigms, hegemonic consensuses, generally reflect 
events in the world. It's not a cabal or something like that. And it just so happened that there was a thriving debate about U.S. foreign policy post-Cold War. When I worked for Irving Crystal, the national interest, before I went to work for you. You know, we published this series of Buchanan defending isolationism and Charles Krauthammer and globalism and Gene Kirkpatrick, many others. The whole debate ended about 1995-96, and it was a result of several events. One was the Japanese asset bubble collapsed. And Japan had slow growth for about a decade because Japan had a very successful nationalistic industrial policy, but it funded it with cheap credit that ended up as non-performing loans on Japanese banks and they had a financial crisis. So they literally paid the bill. They merged stronger as a result of that. But at the time, everyone said, oh, we'll see the Japanese model is a failure, the Anglo-American, you know, Reagan Thatcher model superior. At the same time, Germany went into a decade-long crisis because of the costs of absorbing former communist East Germany, and it just really messed up their economy. So the so-called Rhine model of capitalism seemed to be discredited. At the same time, Russia was just kind of like the South after the Civil War. You know, it was carpetbaggers flying in and, you know, gangsters, you know, privatizing things. And before Putin consolidated autocratic power again in the 21st century. And uh, under Deng Xiaoping, remember, his, one of his mottos was bide your time, right? Do not be a leader in his 24-character little motto that everybody had to memorize. So they, they carefully avoided seeming provocative in, in any way and, and focused on getting foreign direct investment, you know, to build up their, their economy with a very successful industrial policy. It was a variant of that of Japan and South Korea at our expense, but a lot of people in America got rich off of it. So, so at the end of the day, it's just the events were stacked against this kind of national interest realism. And I had a particular, it wasn't the Gulf War as such, it was the Balkan War. Because there's still a lot of opposition all the way up to the Balkan. But when you had the Gulf War followed a few years later by the Balkan War, where this kind of decrepit regime just crumpled under U.S. missiles, at that point, Krauthammer and Kagan and Crystal and the other neocons seemed to be vindicated, right? And you may remember under George W. Bush, the Pentagon summoned historians to have meetings about lessons to be learned for America from imperial Rome and empires and all of that. So, so that was the hubris and the Ate came with the financial crisis of 2008, which I, I, we don't need to get into it on this show, but, but the macro factors involved the imbalances are between China and the U.S., and the and uh, trade deficit countries being recycled through the financial system, and that blew up. Then you had the the Iraq War turned bad around two thousand four two thousand five, and the backlash brought the Democrats to power in two thousand six in Congress, and then in two thousand eight with Obama. And then finally, you know the 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 disaster in Afghanistan, which I think is an unexploded mine. I'd be interested to know what you think. It's like mm. it reminds me right after Saigon fell. In the seventy, nobody wanted to talk about this, you know, for for years. It's just okay. We're going to move on. We're not even going to think about it. It's so traumatic. This was a big deal. 
right? It was this 20-year war against the Taliban. And I, I think Biden was correct to bug out. I, you know, the way we did it was a mess. And I think Trump was correct to prepare for withdrawal. But we lost. We were humiliated. The Taliban are in power, right? It's like all of this for nothing. So I think that's this. It's going to appear at some point in American politics in the future. Uh, we So what you're describing really is a way in which a national elite consensus sort of emerged thanks partly toward to political ideas, to arguments people were making, to the internal debate, but also propelled and directed by external events that seem to vindicate or legitimize these arguments. And then in turn, itself got undermined by subsequent events, which seem to indicate, in fact, this hubris, this notion that the free market everywhere is going to solve all our problems and that American power is going to get rid of all tyranny, in fact, banish it from the face of the earth in George W. Bush's second inaugural address. Obviously hit reality in Iraq, subsequently this catastrophe in Afghanistan, and thereby brought people back. But, but Trump was the only one, really, to call this out when he did as emphatically as he did. In some ways, it was as if Trump comes along. But actually, before I get to Trump, let me ask you about his key predecessor, which is Patrick Buchanan, whom you have... Who Hi there. Also, it seems this is not the end of this podcast. In fact, we're only just getting going. If you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this, it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full. No extra charge. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and make sure your podcast is up to date with the Dishcast. You'll be able to add it to your Dishcast feed and never have this, hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you too for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy. AndrewSullivan.substack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money. And you also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday. Not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's dish cast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered, or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account. AndrewSullivan.substack.com. Subscribe and get the whole thing. Join the debate. Join the fun. Subscribe. <laughs>